0: When you think about archaeology in, you know, older contexts, you think about digging these pits into the ground that are like feet deep. And then when you hear about an excavation at like Seneca Village and six inches down and you're already finding coins from the 19th century, it's like that literally could have been me as a seven-year-old just playing in the dirt. Like that is so wild that it it was quite literally right there and just no one thought to look.
1: And welcome to Everyday Environmentalism, a podcast that tells past and present stories about urban nature in New York City. I am Amanda Martin Harden, I'm an environmental historian studying at Columbia University, and I'm joined by my co-host Prem Tucker, who also studies history at Columbia and works as a journalist, and Maddie Aubie, a PhD archaeology student at UCLA, who we are actually interviewing today. If you've listened to this podcast before, you probably know Maddie, but you may not know that her research interests focus on the African diaspora in antebellum North America. In this episode, we chat with Maddie about her undergraduate thesis that she completed at Columbia, which is called Visions Underfoot Seneca Village and the Poetics of Remembrance. It's an interdisciplinary project that combines archaeology, history, and poetry. Maddie used physical objects found by archaeologists at Seneca Village as a way to creatively ponder the interior lives of the individuals who called Seneca Village home. This is actually part two of our series of episodes on Seneca Village. So if you want a more traditional history about the facts and origins of Seneca Village, listen to our previous episode with Dr. Nan Rothschild if you have not already. But for now, let's get into the poetics of remembrance and discuss why Maddie decided to use a creative medium as a means to uncover the past. Okay, so Maddie, could you just start by telling us, what is your project about, and how did you first get interested in researching Seneca Village?
0: Yeah, so um, this was my senior thesis project, and I wrote it, you know, I graduated in 2021, so I wrote it mostly in 2020, Um, and I had kind of gone into the end of junior year, beginning of senior year. You know, thinking about what I wanted to research and I thought I wanted to go out in the field and then COVID happened and that was no longer a possibility. So I knew it was going to have to be something closer to home. And that was at the point where I still thought that I might be able to go into the field. And then I sort of came to the realization that I was going to have to do my project on an existing body of work because I wasn't going to be able to find anything for myself, um, both because of COVID, but also just because of the time constraints at that point. So I spoke to my thesis advisor, Dr. Zoe Crossland at Columbia, and she sort of told me, she was like, have you heard of Seneca Village? And I was like, oh yeah, I think that's in Central Park. I think I've heard of it a couple times. And she was like, how about you read up on that and then get back to me? Um, So I read a little bit about it, and I think the thing that really struck me was the fact that it was literally under Central Park in a place that I had walked home so many times, like, as a little kid. So it wasn't just, like, a part of the park that I had never really been to or I only went to rarely. It was, like, an everyday thing for me, and I never realized that it was there. So I think that that's why I was really interested in it. And then um, I think knowing that, I was just, like, who are these people? Like, I wasn't so much interested in, like, the larger scale, I guess, you know, food ways and the ways that the community were structured as a whole but I was more so really interested in the people um, as individuals and that's how I came to doing genealogical work because I was like this is something that I can do safely remotely and hopefully still get something valuable out of it
2: okay well like despite those COVID and time and space restrictions I feel like the project didn't really feel like you were trying to make the best of the worst like it's super interdisciplinary you got archaeology you got anthropology you got history poetry it was it was very active you know you weren't trying to make things work you made them work um, so could you speak to your decision to engage with this array of fields instead of just going for the more traditional route of just telling the story of the village
0: yeah so i mean i studied archaeology Um, but I think once I realized that I was going to be dealing with the archive and I wasn't actually going to be dealing with any objects in my hands, although they were all available through images online, I was like, obviously history is going to come into play. Like they're literal documents. How could it not? Um, and then in terms of anthropology, I did the interdisciplinary major. So I think that the entire time that I was studying archeology, span I was simultaneously studying anthropology And I personally, I don't really think the two can be separated unless you're doing like paleo archaeology where you really can't access anything but bones. Um, But I would still argue that anthropology plays a role there. Um, So I think that that's why anthropology and history came in. And I think that anthropology took a bigger and bigger role as I actually met the people that were in my thesis class with me because I was the only archaeology student. Um, So I was just surrounded by a bunch of anthropologists and everything that they spoke about. I was like, wait, I could use that. Wait, I could use that. That would make this so much more interesting. Um, So I felt like anthropology helped me sort of fill in gaps where I thought that the record couldn't, you know, fill that in in a satisfactory way. Um, And then I came to the decision of poetry. Perhaps not by choice. Um, I had written poetry for another class that I had taken um for my with my thesis advisor the semester prior um and she was like Maddie you should write poetry in your thesis and i was like absolutely what do you mean like why would i write poetry in my archaeology thesis and she was just like i think you're very good at writing poetry um i had won some poetry awards in high school so it wasn't so much that i was worried about writing poetry i was worried about what people would think if I were to include poetry. But then I came across Sadia Hartman's, I guess, idea, rhetoric of critical fabulation. She uses it in terms of narrative and she calls it like writing at the edge of the archive. And so none of it is fake, like it's all plausible, but none of it is necessarily exactly confirmed. And so you're sort of writing in that space in between And so I knew that I could do some sort of narrative there. And then I think I felt more comfortable using poetry, firstly, because I know how to write poetry and I don't necessarily know how to write short stories, but also because I felt like poetry was something that audiences automatically take with a grain of salt and they don't, you know, read through an air of legitimacy in the way that narrative does. And I think that when you write you know historical fiction or something like that you need this disclaimer saying this is not necessarily true but I think that poetry just sort of naturally is consumed in that way and so I felt like it kind of worked perfectly for that idea of critical fabulation
1: yeah and I love this idea Hartman reference and I know in your thesis you also talk about is the author Marilyn Nelson yeah who wrote a book of Poetry about Seneca Village. So we'll link both of those texts in our show notes because I think they're both like really excellent references if people want to dig more into what you're talking yeah, about. absolutely. Um, which is so interesting. So along the lines of what you're talking about, just as you said, for this project, you didn't hold yourself strictly to like only interpreting facts or just sort of rotely looking at the physical objects and just, you know, describing them and what have you. So as you said, you speculate on what these particular artifacts and objects who they might have belonged to what they may have signified and so why did you opt for this approach and what difference did this make for you as a researcher in terms of your own connection to the project and in terms of how you think about Seneca Village itself yeah
0: I think connection wise this is something that I do sort of no matter what whether I write it down or not like I see an object and I'm like Oh my God, like was it a little girl who owned this? Was it a full-grown man? Where did they get it from? What did they use it for? How long did they use it? And if the answer isn't there, I mean, that's really what archaeology is. You make up a story just using as many facts as you can to back it up. Um, When you don't have those facts, you can't write it down. You just kind of say it to yourself in your head. And I think knowing that something belonged to someone, because I think we often talk about things belonging to a culture, But thinking about an object belonging to someone makes it makes the responsibility of telling its story seem a lot more immediate because you think about like I mean people have loved objects like being materialistic is a tenet of being a human like people have used and held and loved objects for so long and you think about your own objects and like if I if I lost my phone. I would want the person to think about whose phone this was. I would want them to want to return it to me. All these different things. Um, and so I think that really thinking about the people who own the individual objects and not just thinking about them as the objects that belong to Seneca Village as a whole made me feel much more connected. And I wanted to do the work like as best as I could just because I was really like, oh my God, this was somebody's. And I want that somebody to like feel as if their objects were honored. So, yeah, I think it was just mostly it helped me focus on the actual people instead of the collective.
1: Oh, I like that answer a lot. I'm glad that we did ask that question. This is an aside that I probably will also cut. But I remember watching this um, like nature documentary about these specific type of little birds that like decorate their nests.
0: They're like interior decorators.
1: Yeah, I felt such a kinship to them, because I guess that is just such a deeply human thing to want to do.
0: Yeah, I think when people are like, oh, I'm a minimalist, I'm like, it's just not in us. (laughs) We just don't have that. It takes so much more work to be a minimalist than a maximalist, even if it's in like the smallest of things. That's an interesting point. Don't tell the minimalists I said that.
2: This discussion also, I feel like, you know, as I was skimming through this, one thing that I enjoyed and, like, related the questions with was just how sort of aspirational the project felt. That, like, it wasn't just speculating, like, you were trying your best as as a researcher to, you know, as you said, like, operate at the edge. But, like, fill in the gaps in such a way that, as you say, like, kind of connects us to a someone. And and I liked how you kind of directly grappled with it when you're talking about, like, is it Battle Baptiste? Is that how you say yeah. their name? Like of, you know, creating compelling questions, taking nothing for granted, while understanding your own position as a researcher, while you're trying to like make sure you're not reproducing sort of like toxic or negative notions about people, um, and challenging them, and like for Seneca Village to you know provide this opportunity, it's it's cool that you took the chance to do it and and try to be aspirational and and imagine what these artifacts could have been or what they meant.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Battle Baptiste wrote Black Feminist Archaeology. Shout out. Everyone should go read it. Um, We'll link that too. But I think she really made a really good point about not taking anything for granted. And I'm sure we'll talk about this later. But like when you look at items, who you are as a person informs how you see them. So like I think one of the – I don't know if I talked about this or not. But one of the objects was a comb. And I realized that like for my peers – who were not black or who were not black women or black femmes, they would see that and be like a comb. Oh, you comb your hair every day. I now have an understanding of how this object was used. But as a black person, you look at that um, and you say, oh no, you comb your hair once a week, you put it in a style, you leave it in that style for a week and you tie your head at night. And so like these different objects take on a different significance and, un- and unless I think in some cases, unless you're very well educated or you're a member of the community from which the object came, like you just don't even process those things, which like isn't really anyone's fault, but it's just why you need to have so much diversity when studying people because people themselves are diverse.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So that was one object that you, that, you had out of four that, you know, seemed to resonate with you that uh, had a poem corresponding to each. So there was the comb, a four hole porcelain bottle, button, sorry, not bottle. That'd be crazy. Um, Imagine a bottle with four holes, um, an iron kettle found within an iron pan and a singular small leather shoe. So could you perhaps speak to some of these objects, why you chose them? What was the resonation with them?
0: Yeah, so, um, I just sort of referenced it, but I think the reason that I picked the comb was because I, like, I looked at it and I could just see it. Like, I was like, this was me as a little girl sitting, watching TV with my mom sitting above me, combing my hair, and I'm just, like, crying because I hate it. Like, this is an object that, like, I feel a visceral connection to, um... The button I picked because there were tons of buttons, and maybe we could link this too. They have a whole archive that's available online, and it's all the objects that were found at Seneca Village with, like, really high-quality pictures. Um, But I looked at the button, and I think the reason the button and the buttons in general resonated with me is because I knew that at the same time there were these workhouses downtown where, you know... Black people, poor people, children, women were sort of being put into these workhouses to make buttons and then here was a, you know, a middle class as they call it, um, predominantly black community wearing buttons and I was just like, that's so crazy that in these two contexts the exact same item is like in one sense a symbol of oppression and in another sense... It's a symbol of like, we made it, you know, like we have nice buttons on our shirts and we have nice buttons on our shirts that we're leaving behind. I think that that's why that one resonated with me. Um, The iron kettle and the iron pan resonated with me because it was it was a weird realization where I was like, my thesis is sort of about unpacking like the space that exists between free and enslaved And seeing the iron pan and the iron kettle, I was like, this is a representation of labor that must be done. Like whether it's done for someone else by means of slavery or whether it's done for your family by means of domestic work or whether it's done for someone else's family by means of paid domestic labor. Like this is a staple that's always been there. And so it really is just all about the context where, like, now you can have these pots and pans and be proud to have them versus pots and pans that you're forced to work with. And I thought that that was just, like, crazy. Um, And then the small singular leather shoe I feel like is just eerie because it was, like, it would either be worn by a woman with a very small foot or a child in the explanation of the object. And just to think about one shoe being left behind, like... Was that an accident? Like, it, w- it was just very eerie to think about something that always comes in a pair being isolated.
1: You know, that one in particular, That just hearing you describe the shoe again just now, it's made me think about so many times, like, especially walking through park spaces, which I know Seneca Village was not yet a park space, obviously. But I see, like, little kid shoes that... Kids have just, like, discarded and their parents didn't notice in time. And it's, like, one shoe flung into the wild or whatever. And it is, there's just something interesting about that with archaeology of, like, our humanness as much as we change and as much as as historians, we talk about, like, cultural contexts shape us and condition us. And we're not exactly the same and we don't have the same necessarily perspectives as people in the past, which is true. But there is this through line of just, like, I don't know, something about that shoe strikes me as weirdly relatable in a way, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. But um, Maddie, would you like to read us one of the poems? Perhaps about, I, I don't know, I love the comb poem, but I don't know if you had one in particular.
0: Okay, I can read the comb poem. Let's do it. So for those listening, there's an image of a comb, and underneath it, it has the quote from the Archaeological Repository of New York City, which says, percha comb which just means plastic, um, and it says one gutter perch a comb with 12 teeth. A comb, 12 long teeth for parting and detangling and twisting and digging through thick, coiled black hair, conjures images of the least gentle forms of intimacy. A daughter, young and plastic, under her mother's touch, sits on the floor, knees to chest, between her mother's work bowed legs. Tender-headed and unaware, she writhes and wriggles in the way any black girl can attest to. To thick, too-matted, too-knotted hair is sculpted in preparation for Sunday services. One day, a man on the television will ask her granddaughter, who taught you to hate the texture of your hair? Who taught you to hate yourself from the top of your head to the soles of your feet? Who taught you to hate your own kind? And she, too, will not know the answer. She winces and the comb breaks through a knot. She does not yet understand the privilege that it is to get your hair combed on an idle Saturday evening in March.
1: I love that. Thank you so much for reading that. And it's so cool hearing it, too, after you describing that idea in a little more depth beforehand.
0: If anyone doesn't know, the italicized parts are from a um, Malcolm X speech, when it's like, who taught you to hate yourself? Beyonce used it in her world tour. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not that exact part, but the part where it's like the most disrespected woman yeah. and a person in America is a black woman is yeah. from that.
1: Yeah. But You and Beyonce have that in common.
2: Yeah. Well, Beyonce has that in common with Maddie, actually. Yeah.
1: Oh, exactly. Get the order right.
2: <laughs> so, Maddie, another intervention your scholarship makes is complicating the historical binary between freedom and slavery in African-American history. You use, for example, the well-known life of Frederick Douglass, reminding us that he experienced enslavement and quote-unquote freedom at different points in his life. You write that using freedom and enslavement as a dichotomy can obscure the various forms of structural oppression that Black individuals faced, even if they were not enslaved. Could you maybe talk a bit more about this, especially you know how this relates to your analysis of the village?
0: Yeah, so I think that The idea, or I guess the point at which I got really frustrated with the idea of freedom versus enslavement, um, was in discussions of like, oh, this was a free state. Oh, this was a slave state. And just, I think this idea that like, this absolute rejection of the notion that people could be connected to both. um, And I think that... Separating them erases individual experience. For example, with Frederick Douglass, like despite the fact that he died free, doesn't mean he still didn't have parts of him that were inherently shaped by the fact that he was born into slavery. Um, and I think conversely, the fact that he was born in slavery ignores, and and just stating it as that ignores the fact that like there was a moment in his life where he was in complete like transition between the two you know, being a fugitive, like, it's not just like, oh, that's the transi- transition from being enslaved to being free. Like, that is a traumatic, life-altering thing that happens. It's not just like, oh, I was enslaved and now I'm free. Um, And then I think additionally, I was thinking, as I was doing genealogical work, about familial ties. And, you know, there's always the saying where, like, I will shall never be free until my brothers in chains, yada, yada, yada. But i f- Think about that even literally, and this idea of like, how could you be free if every cent of your paycheck goes back to some enslaver in the South to you know get your mom purchase your mom's freedom? Like, I just thought that that was so. It it was such a flattening of such a deep experience. Um, and then I think I really held on to that when I realized that one of the people that I was studying. Um, or I guess tracing his life, who was from Seneca Village, was born in the same county as Frederick Douglass and was around the same age, I want to say, as Frederick Douglass. And then you see him in Seneca Village and you're like, oh my God, he's free. How did he get free? Was he a fugitive? Who knows? Most people, unlike Frederick Douglass, did not care to write that down because that could get you in trouble. Um, But then as I traced his life further, then in his 70s, He ends up in an almshouse because he can't support his family. And in the ledgers of the almshouse, it essentially states that he was a burden onto his family. So he admitted himself, quote unquote, I'm going to use the phrase, quote unquote willingly into this almshouse. And I was like, that's not freedom. You know, administer, like forcing yourself to work in a workhouse is not you're not free. And at the time of being admitted, they have this whole form that you have to fill out. And it says, where were you, bo- where were you born? Whatever, Maryland. Um, what did your mother do? Slave. What did your father do? Slave. Do you have any siblings? Whatever. Four, if I remember correctly. What did they do? Slaves. And it was just really wild to read this and say, no, but on the census in Seneca Village in that one year where we have him recorded, it says that he's free. Um, So I think that that's why I really latched on to that. And I think in the analysis of Seneca Village, I found it a valuable thing to, I guess, take into consideration because these were, you know, free black people, as they would have been called in documents, and they were middle class from what we understand. But this was not at a time where the majority of the United States was free. So I was I was just, I, w- I would think to myself, would they call themselves completely free? Would they be like, yes, I am liberated? Undoubtedly, they had family that was lost or passed or in the South or elsewhere or in jail or in workhouses. The list can go on. And so I felt like, again, I felt like I had this... um sort of responsibility that if i was going to take on their work i wanted to do as good of a job as i could and i thought that part of doing a good job meant extrapolating on this common misconception that like once you were in new york past this date you were free and woohoo throw your hats in the air and rally around um because i just thought it wasn't a good representation of what their lives must have been like
1: which is such a great point too because i mean it through the 18, I think, 30s, I think, was it 1837, that New York finally outlawed slavery? Yeah. So, I mean, New York was this state that has this really complicated legacy with, like, parts of the black community were enslaved while parts were not, and there was this mixing and mingling, and if, if people that you know that interact with in the market are enslaved, to your point, it's like, I don't think it's this feeling of... I'm completely safe from this institution that's enslaving this person I'm, like, chatting with,
0: potentially on a weekly basis. Also, something I would like to add that I completely forgot that you just reminded me is that to the counter of that, I also think that to say someone was enslaved and they were a slave and they were not free is also a flattening of their experience. Because, again, Frederick Douglass, I mean, the man can write, um... In one of his autobiographies, he talks about as a child until, like, the age of seven, he didn't even understand that he was born into slavery. And if you don't understand that you're born into slavery, then you're free, essentially. Yeah. So that's, like, that's what he's saying. So he was like, I grew up a free boy, and then I became enslaved, and then I freed myself again. So I think, and he, in his writing about it, he describes how, like, as a child, he didn't have to, you know, wear clean clothes, and he didn't have to bathe like the white boys his age did. So he felt in his child's mind that he was freer than them. He was like, oh, it must suck to be a white kid because they have all these respectability politics that they have to subscribe to and I don't. Hmm. And so I think there are just all these levels of, you know, someone's enslaved, but they learn how to read. And suddenly that's a new opening to their liberation. And so I think that, I just think, I think the dichotomy should be thrown out, but I understand why it isn't.
1: Well, I think so much of what, to me, your project really gets at is thinking about, you know, in this micro area of Seneca village that even that in the way that we kind of talk about it in a historical way, it's sort of this glossed over like, Oh, it was a predominantly black community that was displaced. Yeah. And you try to get at the texture of like the individual lives and emotions of the people who inhabited that space. And I think that's what's really great about your project is because if you get past those oversimplified dichotomies of like this person was free or they were enslaved, you get the texture of their interior lives and like all the complexities they're in. Because of course, enslaved people were still individual human beings who surely didn't just think of themselves as I'm an enslaved person, right? And so I think you're you're able to grapple with that in a really rich way. Exactly. Um you have this one quote that I'm gonna Read that I really loved in your thesis because it's like I could hear it in your voice <laughs> when I was reading it, and you say, "As a New Yorker, it is a bizarre and eerie feeling to look at these images and be suddenly acutely aware of the lives forgotten beneath our feet, impacted under years of foot traffic, vehicle traffic, and endless construction that we've come to know the city for." And you're referencing these um, images that that it's a great suggestion that we will link of like the archival objects from Seneca Village. And I just think that that quote is such a striking distillation of how knowing park history can change your personal relationship to a place. So what difference do you think it makes for New Yorkers to know the longer stories of spaces like Seneca Village, whether emotionally or politically, what have you? Like, why does it matter that we know these stories?
0: Yeah, I think on the most basic level of park history in general, I think it was, I mean, at this point, probably like three years ago. But it doesn't feel like three years ago. It feels like very recently, I realized that archaeology could be done that wasn't thousands of years ago. Like, I think archaeology is always like, haha, Indiana Jones Temple of Doom, you know, Parthenon, like things like that. And so I think, you know, maybe you feel the same way as a historian, but as an archaeologist in the US, you like are constantly looking to Europe, looking to Northern Africa. Being like, oh, they have the archaeology over there. And looking to South America as well um, and Central America. And I think, you know, we give a lot of – I'll speak about European cities now. We give a lot of European cities a lot of credit being like, isn't it so amazing, you know, the history that you're walking upon? And, like, that's why we valorize these cities. Paris has the catacombs, you know. You walk around Rome and you see the Colosseum. And you're like, that's amazing. And I'm not saying that that isn't amazing, but I think I think there's a lot here that people just don't realize because we haven't, I don't know if our municipal governments haven't valued it in the same way or, you know, just the culture of the U.S. hasn't valued it in the same way. And so I think on the most basic level, realizing all the history that's underneath you, like, I think... I, I When I say it makes you respect your city, I don't mean it in terms of like, wow, my city is great, because it might make you realize all the terrible things that your city has been doing for so long. But I think it makes you respect the space that you stand on sort of as hallowed ground and realize that like, if we zoom out a little bit, there's been a lot going on here for a really long time. And then I think politically, there are often discussions when it comes to the US again, because we treat U.S. history as starting very recently, and therefore we extrapolate that to mean that this con- the history of this continent started very recently. Um, I think there's a lot of rhetoric of, you know, melting pot. We were all immigrants here once, blah, 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 blah. And in doing so, whatever the end goal of those statements may be, we erase the fact that there were here pe- people here before. Whether that's saying there were Native people here before, or whether that's saying there was a Black community here before. There were people here before us. And I think by sort of having a short lens on everything, it's easier to say that issues of gentrification and this, that, and the other thing are new problems. But then when you, it, I mean, Seneca Village was not even that long ago. You go back to 1855, and you're like, this was happening in 1855. Like, public works were displacing black individuals in 1855, and we still are trying to pretend like this has happened within the last 50 years, last 100 years. And so I think politically, it also, not only does it make you grasp and perhaps understand things better, but I think for people who this is their own history, I think it it validates how you feel about certain things. Um And I think it makes you realize that, like, no, I have grounds to stand upon upon here, both literally and figuratively. Um, And then I think also emotionally, it's just nice to, like, see yourself represented. And I think we often think of the history of New York as, you know, Manhattan, and then suddenly it's the hustle and bustle of Wall Street. And, And, you know, the industrious Wall Street, and we don't really think about what was north of that, or what happened in between that?
1: Yeah, and it's like, um, uh, maybe the Dutch in between.
0: Yeah, <laughs> will be referenced. Maybe, yeah. maybe there was something there. Um, so I think it's just nice to, you know, for Black New Yorkers to be like, here's some older Black New Yorkers.
1: Yeah, especially in a spot like the Upper West Side that has been and more in a traditionally wealthy community,
0: or exactly. middle class, but relatively wealthy community, land owning community, right. Like, don't let them say that it's always been this certain way because there's proof that it hasn't.
1: Yeah, because I know, you know, Prim loves counterfactuals, so this one's for you, Prim. But it is an interesting moment to contemplate Seneca Village and think, I wonder what might have become had this neighborhood not been displaced. How might New York look different, you know, in that area? And so I think it's a really worthwhile... Um, thing that you've articulated
0: oh no I was just going to say I think also which I sort of talk about in the poem um, that relates to this quote I think but it's very when you think about archaeology in you know older contexts you think about digging these pits into the ground that are like feet deep and then when you hear about an excavation at like Seneca Village and six inches down and you're already finding coins Yeah, from the 19th century. It's like that literally could have been me as a seven-year-old just playing in the dirt. Like that is so wild that it, it was l- quite literally right there and just no one thought to look. Which
1: is also a great visual image like a mental image of how to your point how recent that history is it's like it's not foot submerged underground you know um i think this would be a great moment to read if you would another poem land after seneca yeah
0: um land after seneca at the edge of the park where it meets 84th in central park west there is a double swing set facing southeast I passed this swing set in this corner of the park for 14 years, when I wanted to take the long way home from school. I would sit on the swing, my backpack a counterweight to my small frame. This is where I learned how to pump my legs, to swing by myself. I wonder what specters of school days past I might have swung by here, my feet kicking through the hoary haze of a mother parting her daughter's hair, a father gently weeping for his son, a church service gone over schedule. A first word, a last word, a goodbye, a hello, a departure, a see you soon, a beginning, an end. I must have swung here, not yards away from the excavation, for I certainly did at the age of nine. But as is common of children at play, I must not have noticed. I must not have paid any mind to the lives being unearthed a few feet away, the lives being packed further down each time I jumped off the swing.
1: Amazing. Thank you for reading that.
0: Yeah.
1: Yes.
2: So this is this is a fun one. Um, speaking of speculation and aspiration, um, what are your future plans, research plans, and plans in general at UCLA? Uh, do you think this this whole project, this endeavor, will inform maybe some future pursuits or endeavors?
0: Um. Yeah, so I'm going to get my PhD at UCLA. Um, and I think that what was interesting is I was writing this thesis at the exact same time that I was applying to grad schools. And so I think like sort of organically, I just formed this question in my head because I kept being told you have to have a location or you have to have a question. And I was like, I cannot pick a location, so I will have a question. And my question, you know, my little byline that I would email every professor at every school that I reached out to is I want to further interrogate the dichotomy of free and enslaved that is used to describe the black community in antebellum United States. That was my thing when it was what I was interested in. And I think that while I knew that that was what I wanted to study, this was my first time actually trying to do that. And I liked it. Like, I really, it was one of those moments where, you know, you always go around saying, I hate school, I hate school. And everyone's like, if you hate school, why are you signing up to do a PhD? And then you have, like, a moment where you're, like, on, you know, Ancestry.com and you're like, maybe I like school, but don't tell anybody. Like, I can't admit to finally admitting that I like school. Um, so I think that in terms of that question, that will definitely inform my future endeavors. And... I think sort of in terms of my life plans in general, something that Seneca Village, I think, helped cement this year was that I am a Northeast girl. I don't think I can leave here for very long. Um, I think reading about the history of New York and looking at the images of New York, you come to realize that like when you've been in a place for a certain amount of time, you have a familiarity that like can't really... Like, you can't explain it to other people necessarily. And I always think about this when I think about even places that my family would routinely go to for vacation. Like, we used to go to Key West a lot. And I was like, I only understand Key West in terms of isolated spots. I don't understand how these different places that we visit every time we go connect. Because when we're driving, I'm not paying attention. Whereas New York is a place that I feel like I wholly understand. And so I would look at a picture of you know, alms is downtown. And I'd be like, I know how to get there on the train without looking anything up on my phone. And something about that familiarity with the location, I think cemented in my mind that I ultimately do want to come back to doing work in New York because I think while it's lovely to have different people from different places also bring their perspective because that can be just as useful, it is also useful to have people from a place work on that place and talk about that place because they have an understanding That perhaps can't be communicated, but is still Mm. valuable within the work. Wow. I don't know what I'm going to write my thesis on, though. Couldn't tell you.
2: Yeah. I mean, you got time. Uh, But otherwise, how lucky New York will be to have you return.
0: Yeah, I mean, we'll see. If I can afford it. If I get a job, I'm doing it. Yeah. I love that research
1: question, though, Maddie. I really do. I think that's a huge question and a really good one. And I can't wait to see what you come up with.
0: I also Googled the question, and I looked it up on JSTOR, and I couldn't find anything. And I was like, there we go! That's my question.
1: It's just a great point, too, because I think in terms of the general public's historical understanding of antebellum US, it's like, people really do just think, oh, slavery happened in the South, didn't happen in the North. You know, like, most people think that. Just, just not true. Well, Maddie, we've come to the end of our list of questions. Is there anything we've left out that you'd like to touch on?
0: No, I just think you should definitely check out um, the archaeological repository. has all the pictures, and I think like it's just so interesting to scroll through them because I think whether you've been trained in archaeology or not, like I think we inherently make up stories in our head. It's like you don't have to write it down, but it's still fun to think about the possibilities.
1: Yeah, we'll definitely include some links to that. I think that sounds excellent.
2: And of course, everyone be sure to find a way, whether it gets published or not, to, if it gets published, read it. If it doesn't get published, Pirate. It's called Visions Underfoot. Seneca Village and the Poetics of Remembrance. Um, Yeah. Read it before it's gone, folks.
0: I can't claim the name. I DM'd a person in my class over Zoom who I thought had a really good way with words. And I said, If you were to name my thesis, what would you call it? And they responded, Seneca Visions Underfoot and something about the poetics of remembrance. And I said, It's a great title. That's so good. good. Can I use that? And then they were like, Yeah.
2: Wow. Well, shout out to our unnamed. Um, yeah, I don't know if they the want to star. put them out there like that. Yeah, yeah. That's but shout bad. out to them.
1: Well, thank you so much, Maddie. This was a fantastic conversation. Yay! Thanks, Maddie. That's our episode today. Thank you so much for listening and thank you Maddie for sharing your fascinating research with us today. I want to thank Maddie and Prim in general as this episode actually concludes the first season of Everyday Environmentalism. I couldn't have made this podcast without them especially in COVID times where we had to record everything remotely. They were incredible and I thank you both so much for your help. Thank you to the Society of Fellows and the Heyman Center at Columbia University for funding this project. And thank you to all the listeners who've stuck with us through this journey. It's been a blast getting to hear from some of you. And we hope to bring you more content for a season two in the somewhat near future. If you haven't listened to our other episodes, please do check them out. You can find them on everydayenvironmentalism.org. Or you can follow along with us on social media. We are on Twitter at Everyday. underscore enviro and instagram at everyday environmentalism keep in touch with us let us know if you have suggestions for episodes you'd like to see covered in season two maybe now that things are more open comparatively to when we recorded most of this season maybe we can do some actual outside recordings for season two you never know but thank you so much for listening be well and we hope to see you outside